0: This station is now the ultimate power in the universe. I suggest we use it. The button portion stops here. Plug the radio in. Yeah.
1: Welcome, once again, to Evidence for Faith, the voice of Rashi Christie. This is the show where we help you learn how to live a happy life. Talk about the ideas, the philosophy that leads to a fulfilled and abundant life. Hello, I'm Keith Kendricks. Be sure and check us out on the web at evidenceforfaith.com. That's evidence, the number for faith.com. We've got a great new facebook page thanks to kirk you can also find us on itunes if you want to listen to podcasts also check out the website ratiochristi.org well we've got a couple of exciting news items one of these is from new scientist and it's about some genetic evidence that is proving a story in the bible to be true About 3,000 years ago, the Bible tells us that the Queen of Sheba traveled from what is now Ethiopia to meet King Solomon in Israel. And according to this article in New Scientist, it says that a Luca Pagini, a scientist by the name of Luca Pagini of the Wellcome Trust Sanger Institute in Hingston, UK examined samples of Ethiopian genomes and noticed that some individuals had components of both African and non-African lineages. Delving deeper, Pagani and his colleagues discovered that the non-African genetic component had much more in common with people living in Syria and around the eastern Mediterranean than in the nearer Arabian Peninsula. What's more, the gene flow probably took place around three thousand years ago and they say that there that Ethiopian folklore tells of a child between Queen Sheba and King Solomon the finding apparently is backed up by linguistic research according to this article it says which shows that one of the four language families of Ethiopia migrated from the same region about three thousand years ago and Pagani says Middle Eastern language came to Ethiopia along the Middle Eastern genes. Close quote. So very interesting evidence, once again, for the truth of scripture. Just keeps coming from all areas of science, and that's one of the things we like to focus on on this show. Here's another interesting piece of information that I received recently, it says that an Oxford University study team announced last week that DNA and radiocarbon testing of bones found in a Bulgarian church in 2010 fit the profile of bones belonging to John the Baptist. It says tests proved that the bones likely belonged to a first century man of Middle Eastern descent And the box they were contained in was inscribed with writings that mention John the Baptist and the date of his birth. So, again, more evidence. This has just been so much evidence coming out lately uh, about the truth of some of the characters and people mentioned in the New Testament. So, here's more evidence. Well, we have an exciting guest today. Our listeners are going to be excited to hear from our guest Our guest is Dr. Jason Lyle, and Dr. Lyle, welcome to Evidence for Faith.
0: Well, thank you very much for having me on. Dr. Lyle is
1: the Director of Research for the Institute for Creation Research, ICR, and uh, I have a bio- Here, I'll just read a a few things. He graduated summa cum laude from Ohio Wesleyan University, where he double majored in physics and astronomy and minored in mathematics. And he earned a master's degree and a Ph.D. in astrophysics at the University of Colorado. So, Dr. Lyle, we're really pleased to have you on the show. And we're going to be talking about your new book, which I must tell you, this is really a gorgeous
0: book. Well thanks. I appreciate that. It was a lot of fun to a lot of fun to write and I took a lot of time with the images too.
1: Now, yeah, you know, we're on radio, so it's kind of hard to explain to people, but this is really a beautiful book. It'd make a great coffee table book. It's more than two hundred pages. It's hardbound. It's called The Stargazer's Guide to the Night Sky. And it's all high quality glossy paper with beautiful photographs on virtually every single page has some beautiful photography of the night sky and the stars and galaxies and all kinds of interesting astronomical objects. So uh, Dr. Lyle, just tell us a little bit about the book. Why did you decide to write this and uh, what, what's its purpose?
0: You know, its purpose really is to help people to enjoy the creation of God to enjoy the night sky. It's not really an apologetics book. I've written a lot of apologetics books, and I encourage encourage people to get their hands on those. This one is a little different because it really is just um, meant to showcase God's creation, and then uh, you know let let the let, let the human respond to. Uh, the built-in knowledge of God that the Bible says we all have. The Bible says we're all made in the image of God. We recognize when we look into creation, we recognize God made that. And this book just gives you the information. So suppose we you went out in the night sky and you, you said, okay, I'm, I'm looking at the star. I wonder what that is, and, and I wonder how far away it is, and I'd like to know more about that. Well, this is, this is the book for you. It's going to show you what you can see, Naked eye. It's going to show you what you can see with binoculars. It's going to show you what you can see with a telescope. And some people say, "Well, I don't have a telescope." No problem, because uh, it'll tell you what you can see without one. And there's a lot you can see even without a telescope. A lot of stuff that um, is just very enjoyable just to the naked eye. That being said, if you want to get a telescope, the book has chapters on what kinds you might want to consider getting and what the price range might be, and you know what are the pros and cons of each kind. So it'll it'll talk you through getting a telescope if you want to get one. And then uh, once you get one, it'll tell you how to set it up and where to point it, and it'll show you it's got star charts Showing you all kinds of, of objects that you can see in just a small backyard telescope. I'm I'm talking about something you can get for just a few hundred bucks, something like that. As opposed to um, and, and, you know a computer, or something like that, where you get it for you pay a thousand dollars and the next year it's worth nothing. <laughs> well, telescopes are the opposite; they they maintain their value. So it's a wonderful investment. And really, the book is just designed to help you enjoy the night sky. And that's something that's always been a real passion of mine. I love astronomy. I love the Lord, and I believe that astronomy is one of the ways that the Lord declares his glory to us.
1: Well, that's really true. You know, when I was a young man, I had a telescope, and I really would have loved a book like this, uh, for all the reasons that you said. And so this is make a great gift for someone, if you have a child who's got a telescope or a child that's interested, but also, as you said, even if they don't yet have a telescope, uh, that's... The first several chapters are all about the night sky just without a telescope, what you can see. Um, fascinating chapter on how the eye works, too. This is really, really well done. So I would have loved something like this. And I know my I got a, a telescope for my son when he was a young boy, and we certainly could have used a guidebook like this. i I love this. Can you tell people one of the fun things that people can do is look at all the different, how do you pronounce it? Mercier objects?
0: Oh, uh, yeah, Messier, Messier objects, Messier, yeah. Okay. Th- those are, um, uh, that's, that's named after Charles Messier. He was a French astronomer, and he cataloged 110 objects that you can see in a small telescope that are what we call deep sky objects. And deep sky objects are basically anything that you cannot see with the naked eye. It requires a telescope, um, but, uh, and, th- and anything that's not a star or not a planet. And so things like uh, star clusters that are too far away to be seen naked eye, things like um, nebulae, things like galaxies. And these turn out to be some of the most beautiful objects in the cosmos. And I really love the Messier uh, list because Charles Messier had a small telescope. And what that means is, everything on the Messier list can be seen in a small telescope. You don't have to have a, a national observatory. I mean, a lot of times people will look through these wonderful Hubble images and they'll say, "Well, I'd like to see that in my backyard telescope." But you, some of them, you can, some of them you can, but some of them you can't. Some of them are way out of range. But the nice thing about the Messier list, it's a wonderful list to start with because every one of the objects in that list is relatively easy to find. Uh, you just don't need a lot of experience. And my book has a list of the most common Messier objects, the ones that I think are the most interesting that people will really enjoy. It's divided by time of year, too, because the number of objects, the, 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 the various objects you can see depends on the time of year. You see, different, you see a different night sky in the summer than you do in the winter, and it'll, it'll, it's divided by season, so you can see what... Uh, what you can see at various times of year. The first two chapters in the book really are about motions in the night sky and how to, in your head, figure out when things are going to be up. A lot of people don't realize how easy that is to do. You can figure out what, uh, when, what time the moon's going to rise tonight. You don't need a calculator. It's, it's basic stuff that you can do in your head, and uh, it's very useful to figure out when things are going to be up. And then, as you mentioned, I, have, I do have a chapter on the eye, and the reason I put that in is because if you know how God has designed your eye, you will have a better experience because you'll can you you'll know some things about how to get good and dark adapted and how to maintain good night vision and so on. You'll, your experience will be improved if you know a little bit about how your own eye works. And so I thought it was worth having a chapter on that. And it's kind of a neat design chapter, too, because it, it, it's obvious the eye is not something that has evolved by chance. So right. anyway, I hope that people would get the book. It's for all ages, too, by the way. I think uh, adults could get it and enjoy it, and uh, it's never too late.
1: Well, I did enjoy it, and I, uh, it really made me wish I had it when I was a young boy. I remember having some star chart and had these funny labels, M13 and M81 and M this and M that, and all I knew was that a lot of those were galaxies, and those were the things that I wanted to see. So I remember trying to find M13, so it turns out that's Messier object number 13.
0: That's right, yeah, the M is for Messier, and uh, that's, that's my favorite list. You'll find other lists, too, like the NGC catalog and things like that, but the, uh, the Messier list is my favorite because all those objects can be seen in a small telescope. And, uh, and, of course, because Messier, it's interesting, the story behind how he came up with that list. He was searching for comets... And uh, comets look like little fuzzy things in a small telescope. But there are some other things that look like little fuzzy things in a small telescope that are not comets. And so for, for Messier, those were just distractions from finding comets. And they turn out to be some of the most beautiful things in the, in the cosmos. But for him, they were just trash. They were just not comets. And so, um, yeah, it could be a galaxy. It could be a cluster. It could be anything. It's just basically something that popped up in his list. And they're, but they're all beautiful.
1: And back then, they didn't have any idea what a galaxy was, is that right?
0: That's right, back when he had that list. In fact, uh, it wasn't until the uh, early 20th century, really, that people started realizing that galaxies are other the island universes, for, better, for uh, want of a better term. They're basically a collection of 100 billion stars. And we, we know of our own galaxy, we've known of our own galaxy for quite some time, but when other galaxies were first discovered, people thought maybe they were small and close and within our galaxy. And so, in fact, in older textbooks, sometimes you'll see spiral galaxies classified as spiral nebulae, because they thought maybe they were a nebula, like, a, uh, uh, like the Orion Nebula, like a patch of gas. But it turns out there are actually entire other galaxies out there at tremendous distance, and it wasn't until the 1920s or so that Edwin Hubble was able to see individual stars in these galaxies, confirming their status as island universes.
1: Well, if you're just joining us, you're listening to Evidence for Faith, a ministry of Ratio Christi. I'm Keith Kendricks, and we're talking with Dr. Jason Lyle, Director of Research for the Institute for Creation Research. And uh, we've been talking about his wonderful book, *The Stargazer's Guide to the Night Sky*, which I highly recommend for anyone who is interested in looking at stars and planets. And uh, even I would get this even before you get a telescope, for certain. Well, Doctor Lyle, Doctor Lyle, I'd love to talk. Um, more about some of the interesting things that um, discoveries in the universe have told us about or possibly told us about the age of the universe. There's, you know, we hear the stories about how uh, Hubble saw that galaxies were moving away from each other rapidly and we get this whole description about how the universe supposedly came from a Big Bang And they tell us that if you traced it back, it would have taken um, millions or billions of years to arrive back at that central point. And now, that may be terrific for the the concept that everything had a beginning and therefore needs a beginner. And that's evidence that God exists. But it poses a bit of a problem. Um, From reading the Bible, we don't generally get the impression that the universe is that old. And I take it that you have looked very extensively into this question about the age of the universe, and we'd love to talk to you about that.
0: Well, one of the first issues is this, uh, let me talk about this expansion of the universe, because Hubble did notice that uh, the galaxies are all apparently moving away from each other and from us. It's as if the entire universe is getting bigger, being stretched out. Uh, Some people mistakenly think that that's a prediction of the Big Bang, but it isn't. The Big Bang came along in 1931 as an explanation for that expansion. The expansion was discovered first in the 1920s. And uh, so the Big Bang is basically a secular scenario to try and account for that expansion. Why is everything moving away from each other, they say? Well, because the universe exploded into existence. And what, I'm, what I like to point out is that's, um, that's not really good reasoning. I mean, I, after a big meal, you might expand a little bit, but that doesn't mean you exploded into existence millions of years ago. <laughs> uh, not at all. And so that's the fallacy of affirming the consequent. They're saying, you know, here's, here's an explanation that might account for that. Therefore, the explanation's true. No, 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 not, not at all. In fact, when the expansion was first discovered, uh, scientists thought, as as in fact I think today, that basically the universe started with finite size, and it's been stretched out a little bit since then. And that's something that I believe the Bible hints at in passages like Isaiah forty twenty two, where it says that God stretches out the heavens like a curtain, spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. So I don't, I don't know the reason exactly why God has stretched out the universe, uh, but uh, it does seem to be something the Bible teaches, and it's something that we confirm with science. So, but it doesn't mean that it had to start billions of years ago. That's only based on the assumption that the universe began with zero size, and I think that's a very unreasonable assumption. The Bible tells us God made it big, and unless you have good evidence that it started at no size, which I don't think anybody does, there's no reason to believe it's billions of years old, therefore. There's no problem with the universe being a few thousand years old, as the Bible teaches, and we know that that's what the Bible teaches, because God says he made in six days. It's clear from context those are ordinary days, because they're bound by evening and morning, and they have a number with them the second day, the third day, and so on. And that's always an indication of an ordinary day when you have those contextual clues. And we know it happened a few thousand years ago from those genealogies that you love to read before you go to bed. And so and so begets so and so, and maybe get so and so. If you add up the ages uh, of the of the patriarchs, you'll find that it was a few thousand years, ago, something like six thousand years ago, that God created the heaven, the earth, and all that in them is. And it's uh, it's it's also, by the way, why we have a seven day week. Uh, a lot of people don't realize that, but Exodus 20, 11, beginning in verse 8 and reading through verse 11, you realize the reason that that God tells people to work six days and rest one is because that's the way he made the universe. And so if God made over millions of years, well, we'd have a really long work week, and you'd never make it to the weekend. But uh, no, God made in six days. It's not a problem for him, and there are evidences in the universe that confirm that, and I'd be happy to give you a list of some of those. Maybe uh, one to start with is the recession of the moon. The moon is moving away from the earth, At a rate of about an inch and a half a year, it's not very fast, but and that's caused by tidal forces. The Earth, uh, you know, the moon causes tides on the Earth, and those tides pull forward on the moon because the Earth rotates quicker than the moon orbits, and that pushes the moon away uh, very gradually. If you run the math backwards and you have to do it right, you have to because the moon would be closer to the Earth in the past, and if you run the math backwards, you'd find that the Earth and moon would have been touching 1.4 to 1.5 billion years ago, which may sound like a lot but uh, they're supposed to be 4.5 billion years old in the secular scheme, but they can't be more than 1.4 to 1.5 billion years old. And if you run it back 6,000 years, you find that the moon was only 730 feet closer to the Earth, 730 feet. So it's not a problem for biblical creation, but it's a big problem, people even, billions of years. And there are lots of evidences along those lines. Yeah, you know,
1: when I first uh, became a Christian, I was so... Open. I, because I realized that I had been lied to by atheists in the past. I had been told about evolution and uh, that God didn't exist. And when I was exposed to the evidence for the existence of God and the obviousness uh, that evolution could not occur in the way that people claimed that it did occur, I was very open to the evidence. I figured, well, you know, I've been lied to this much. Uh, maybe I've been lied to about the age of the Earth also. And so I was very open to the young Earth uh, paradigm, and I've studied it for many, many years. And it's very, very extensive, very, uh, a lot of really hard evidence like this that you mentioned about the recession of the moon. And in pursuing my studies further, I decided to get a degree in Christian apologetics. And I was exposed to an alternate view, which was a kind of a Christian view of an old earth and an old universe. And there also, I found very strong evidence. You know, so since that time, I have balanced. In my mind, this I know there are very strong evidences that the earth and the universe are young, and it seemed to me that there were also very strong evidences um, the other way. And so, in my own mind, I just kind of left it open that uh, as a Christian, um, you know, we need to know that God exists, we need to know that the Bible is reliable, and we need to put our faith in Jesus Christ. And I put the age of the earth as kind of on the... Uh, Back burner. But I also ran across a theory by Russell Humphreys that essentially took all of the Big Bang evidence and the you know long ages evidence and really explained it in a in a very what seemed like a, a very clear way. Is that where young earth science is at these days? Are we are we still with the Russell Humphreys model?
0: It's it russ is His model is still out there, and basically it is a young universe model. It's just it allows things to age in thousands of years more than you would expect, um, apart from these, these sort of weird effects of space and time that Einstein discovered. But it is a Young Universe model. Um, It's still out there. It's not my favorite model. I think it's possible. Um, I think we have a better model. Um, I've actually proposed one called the ASK model, the Anisotropic Synchrony Convention, which will, and it it gets rid of the millions of years completely. And uh, I think it explains the data a lot better, too. Uh, I personally am of the conviction that there really is no good evidence at all for millions or billions of years. I've I've heard the arguments that people have made, and uh, when I analyze them, I find that there's always an assumption in there. There's an assumption of uniformitarianism, which is the idea that rates and conditions have been generally constant and so on. And basically that's um, that's circular reasoning, because the Bible tells us that rates and conditions can change quite drastically. We have, for example, the worldwide flood which uh, upset the, the rates at which processes ha- happen here on the Earth. And uh, we know from from the Bible also that the, the way God made the universe was a supernatural way, and I find that most of the, well, really all of the Old Earth arguments that I've heard and Old Universe arguments are based uh, tacitly on naturalism, even though the people making them would, are not necessarily naturalists. I mean, they might be Christians, That's I understand that. And so I'm actually in the process of writing up a paper right now that uh, I'm going to try to demonstrate that from a logical perspective, all these Old Earth and Old Universe arguments are, I believe, logically flawed. And that doesn't mean that um, you know that doesn't mean that person is not a Christian or anything like that. That's not what I'm claiming, but I do believe that something that we need to consider is uh, the theological importance of the age of the universe. And it's not about a number. It's not about six thousand years. But one of the things that. Uh... One of the reasons why I would never believe in in the millions of years is because of the idea of where does death come from. The Bible makes it very clear that death is the penalty for sin, and the Bible makes that clear in a number of different places. But really, that concept goes back to Genesis. It was when Adam sinned that death entered the world. God says the world was very good before Adam sinned. He saw everything he'd made, and behold, it was very good. Many people think that just the Garden of Eden was a paradise, but the Bible says God saw everything he'd made, and it was very good, which means there's not going to be death and suffering and disease and bloodshed. Those things came into the world as a result of sin. And that means when people hold up a fossil, if they say, well, this fossil's millions of years old, well, it can't be, because that fossil, a fossil's a dead thing, and the Bible tells us that death, came into the world after Adam sinned. in fact, as the punishment for Adam's sin. It wouldn't make sense to give somebody a punishment before they'd committed the crime. In fact, that's unbiblical anyway. So one of the, one of the reasons why I do hold to a biblical, uh, the biblical timescale is because of the idea of it really comes down to the gospel message. Not, not that you can't be saved apart from believing in six days. I would never state that. But I would point out that the gospel message doesn't make sense in a millions of years universe where you have death and suffering before Adam sinned. And so that's something that I'd like to maybe challenge your listeners with if they're thinking through some of these issues. And I do believe that there's many there's a lot of compelling evidence uh, for thousands of years in the universe and on earth, and uh, really, no good, compelling evidence for millions of years.
1: Well, let's do that. Let's let's. You've, you mentioned about the receding moon, um, which does to me also seem very strong evidence uh, that uh, the Earth and the Moon system must be young. Um, you know, it's, there's the idea that well, the Moon struck the Earth and became trapped in orbit. And I know there are a lot of problems with that, but one thing if that happened a billion years ago that that was when life was suppo- supposed to be beginning on the earth so it seems like that kind of a collision would have wiped out all life
0: yeah well they put the they put the origin of life many billions of years ago and so they've got they've got to have the moon collide before that obviously and so they basically put the collision of the the collision of a mars-sized object with the earth at um, close to 4.5 billion years i forget the exact date but it's back it's in their view, it's very, very early on. And so you have it what's what basically is an internal inconsistency uh, in their model. And we find lots of those when you hold to the millions of years. Uh, comets, for example, we know, everybody knows that comets can't last billions of years. Even my secular colleagues will admit that. Comets are made up of ice and dirt when they orbit the sun. They they get very close to the sun, and that vaporizes the material. That's what forms a comet's tail. If you've seen a picture of a tail of a comet, that's material being blasted away, and you calculate the rate at which the material's leaving, and they can't last more than about 100,000 years maximum. You know, we still have lots of comets orbiting the sun, and so that would seem to suggest the solar system's very young. And my secular colleagues would say, well, there's this Oort cloud that generates new ones, but there's no evidence for an Oort cloud. As far as we can tell, it exists only in their imaginations. Lots of things along those lines. Mm
1: -hmm. I know for myself, the evidence for I know this isn't your area but in geology the evidence for the Noaic flood seemed so obvious to me after i became a christian because i lived in an area where there were lots of uh, places where roads were cut through mountains and you could see the strata uh, all laid out there in front of you you could see how razor sharp they were and you it was obvious that they had all been laid down simultaneously and that the idea that they would have been laid down and then millions of years would pass, um, you know, there would be nothing to disturb anything, no roots, there were never any roots going through. If there were cracks, the cracks always went entirely down the all of the strata and not uh, piecemeal like would have happened if there had actually been millions of years in between them. So, it's so obvious to me that the earth is young and um, yet we've got this issue, let's let's address back to the the stellar concepts in the, in the universe. We've got this problem where we see that galaxies apparently seem to be receding rapidly and they're very far away and yet light is reaching us. What's the latest on uh, young earth interpretation of that data that we seem to be getting?
0: Okay, that's where my uh, ASC model comes in. The Anisotropic Synchrony Convention or ASC um, the ask model basically uh, is one one way that God could have got the light here very quickly. And in fact, if if, if this model is correct, He's still getting the light here very quickly. It doesn't take billions of years. And the reason this model works, it's based on a little known fact that the one way speed of light uh, cannot be measured but must be stipulated. Now, I'll have to explain what that means because that's a little bit uh, loaded. Uh, you've heard the ter- you've heard this uh, expression, perhaps that the speed of light is constant. That's something that Einstein. Um, Well, he didn't discover it, but he he, uh, worked on that idea that the speed of light is constant. And that means that in vacuum, in space, uh, when you you shine light, it'll travel at a constant speed regardless of uh, who's observing it. But it turns out that's a round-trip speed. In other words, if I were to take a light beam, shoot it out into space, bounce it off a mirror, and bring it back to my source and measure the time, I'll get the same time every time I do that experiment. Apparently, the speed of light is the same. It never changes. But what people don't often realize is that the one-way speed of light, the speed of light in one direction, may be very different than the speed of light in other directions. In other words, the, the, the light may have gone very slowly out to the mirror and then zipped back very quickly. And All we know it, is the total time. We don't know the right, time but, on, a one-way, on a one-way leg. Does that make sense?
1: Yeah, so as long as it was constant... Then you would still get the same measurement every time you did it.
0: As long as the to- yeah, as long as the round trip speed is constant, you get the same time. But we mm-hmm. don't know that the one way speed. Is- we don't know what the one way speed is. There's no way to measure it. And uh, immediately people begin thinking of mental experiments they could do. Well, these have been tried, and it turns out there's always a catch. Uh, for example, if you put, uh, let's say, you put a clock here and you put a clock way out there in space, and you shoot the light beam out. And you say, well, I'll, you know, I'll start it when the clock hits noon, and then when, when, when the light hits the other clock, I'll stop the other clock, and you say, oh, okay, it's one second past noon. It must have taken one second for the light to get there. And it seems like you should be able to do that, but the problem is you never know if the clocks are synchronized. You never know if the clock out there is noon at the same time as the clock locally. And normally, normally the way you synchronize clocks at a distance is you'll send a radio pulse from one to the other. In fact, I have a clock here that does that. It receives a radio signal from Fort, the atomic clock in Boulder, Colorado. There's a radio station in Fort Collins that sends out a radio pulse, and my clock synchronizes itself to that atomic clock. Uh, but radio pulses travel at the speed of light, and so it actually mm. there's actually a slight delay, perhaps, uh, and so you, the clocks aren't exactly synchronized. And any method you can think of the synchronizing clocks at a distance always leaves a little bit of leeway, and for that reason it's not possible to measure the one-way speed of light. Okay, okay. all, all that is by way of background. Basically, okay. the solution then to distant starlight is the speed of light can, tr- can be different in different directions. And so I'm proposing what's called the ASK uh, Synchrony Convention, the Anisotropic Synchrony Convention, which basically says when speed of light is directed toward the observer, its speed is infinite. And So it actually takes no time at all for the light to travel from those distant galaxies to Earth. But if you were to try to send a beam back to those galaxies, it would take a long period of time because the round-trip speed of light is constant, and it's set, and we know what it is. But the one-way trip, the one-way speed, is something that we get to choose. It's It's conventional kind of like the speed limits on roads, we get to decide what that is. We as humanity pick a speed, and that's what it is. The one-way speed of light, amazingly, is like that. And I'm suggesting that the Bible uses this anisotropic synchrony convention, whereby light is instantaneous when it moves toward the observer. And this is all well-established physics. It's been published even in secular literature. Physicists know about this. So it may sound weird, but this is something that Einstein knew about and wrote about. And so, believe it or not, based on standard physics, it takes no time at all for light to get from very distant galaxies to to Earth, despite what we've been taught in school, despite the fact we've been taught it takes billions of years. It really doesn't. And so there's no reason to think that distant that starlight is somehow a problem for the biblical timescale of thousands of years. Now, my model is, is one of several, but it does work, and uh, I'm, I have high confidence that it's, uh, it's the right one. But, it, you know, I could be wrong, and if I'm wrong, that's fine. But let God be true, though every man a liar, as the Bible says. We know that God did it in six days, because that's what he says in his Word, and I have confidence in his Word.
1: Wow, so that is really fascinating i'm I'm gonna have to uh, stay up on this. Um, I assume you'd be publishing this through ICR maybe
0: Yeah, I already published it in fact, I was with uh, I was with the different ministers with Answers in Genesis at the time, and I've published uh-huh. this uh, in what's called the Answers Research Journal, which is on the Answers and Genesis website and uh, it's called the, the anisotropic Synchrony Convention or for that matter, if you just do a search for Lyle and Distant Starlight on the Answers in Genesis website, you'll get my article. And I also have a layman summary of it as well. So I have a, I have a kind of a technical version and then a layman version, and I'd highly encourage people to read that. And I've just done a, uh, I've just done a DVD on the on the topic. Well, it's not out yet, but it, it'll be uh, available from the Institute for Creation Research.
1: Wonderful. Well, if you're just joining us, you're listening to Evidence for Faith, a ministry of Rashio Christi. I'm Keith Kendricks. And we're speaking with Dr. Jason Lyle, Director of Research for the Institute for Creation Research. And we're talking about the universe, the age of the universe, and the speed of light. Dr. Lyle, um, address yourself to non-Christians who are listening and who are interested, thinking about Christianity. Is this issue of the age of the earth all that important? Um, Is the the evidence for a young earth, uh, does that help? to make Christianity more appealing because it, may, it means that the Bible is, therefore, uh, more reliable? What's your What's your take on the importance of this issue for the non-Christian?
0: Yeah, you know, I think a, a lot of Christians are inclined to, to back off on the age of the earth because they think that'll be a stumbling block to non-believers. Um, my experience has been that the opposite is true. My experience has been to just be honest and say, look, here's what the Christian worldview teaches. And I know that's not what you've been taught in school. I know that's what you've not, you've not been taught that in the secular media. But I would challenge non-Christians that uh, unless they accept Christianity as their worldview, they cannot be completely rational. That is, any alternative to Christianity is ultimately self-refuting and ultimately arbitrary. It cannot make sense of the universe in which we live. And uh, one real easy illustration of this, I think that's, that's pretty easy to everyone, is morality. Uh, for example, we, we all know that it's right, certain things are right, and certain things are fundamentally wrong. And I would challenge people, what does that, how does that make sense in an evolutionary universe? You know that certain things are right and certain things are wrong, but if, if really the universe is just chance, and we're just chemical accidents, uh, how can there be a right and wrong and who decides what it is? And they say, well, the majority of people decide right. And I say, well, if I could get the majority of people to agree that it's good to kill you, would that make it right? And they say, mm-hmm. oh, well, no, I guess that's, I guess that's not it. And I uh, say, well, they're just inborn feelings. Tell me what's right. And I say, well, if my inborn feelings tell me it's okay to kill you, would that make it right? And then they realize, well, that can't be it either. Uh, really, you can't make sense of what does right even mean in a chance universe. I mean, when, when, if we're just chemistry, there is no right and wrong. I mean, when baking soda reacts with vinegar and it fizzes up, and you you don't say bad baking soda. You shouldn't have reacted with that vinegar. (laughs) It's not like chemistry can do things that are immoral. Chemistry is just chemistry. It just does what it does. And so if we're just chemical accidents, morality makes no sense. If on the other hand, God made us in His image, as the Bible says in Genesis, and if, if God's going to hold us accountable for our actions, then we have a very good reason to behave in a particular way. God will judge us based on our actions and, of course, ultimately on whether or not we have perceived His, uh, His Son as Savior. Uh, But my point is, the Christian worldview can make sense of morality. We have a God who has the right to make the rules because he made us in his image, and he will hold us accountable for our actions. Morality is just one thing of many, that only makes sense ultimately in the Christian worldview, but does not make sense in any alternative. Likewise, I very briefly, I'm not going to go into details, but I challenge um, my, my unbelieving friends out there, that logic itself, laws of logic, only make sense in a Christian worldview. And for that matter, even the nature of science, the, the idea that we expect the universe to, be, to behave itself and to operate in a consistent, rational way, that makes sense, given that God upholds the universe by the word of his power, but not in light of just a chance universe where anything can happen anyway, so the very things that we take for granted, logic and morality and science uh, only make sense in a Christian worldview and ultimately only in a worldview uh, that's where the where the universe is young actually, where God has made it a paradise, and where we ruined it by rebelling against that God. I think if you don't, uh, if you just sort of leave out and say, well, yeah, you can add in the millions of years, it opens people up to the possibility that God is really an ogre who made things to to suffer and to die and so on. And we need to explain to people, no, 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 God made things perfect. We blew it by rebelling against him, and God rightly punished us uh, for our sin. That's why we have death and suffering in the world. It's not God's fault. It's our fault. And that way we can see, I, I as a young earth creationist, really a biblical creationist, I can answer things like, you know, why do we have this this tragedy? You know, why do we have disasters in the world? God has given us a little taste of what we asked for in Genesis, a life apart from Him. And that's mm-hmm. why we have death and suffering in the world. It comes from our sin. It's not because of God's um, original design.
1: Well, let's make that case then. Let's uh, Let's present some... Uh, more evidence than for the young earth for the young universe you talked about the moon the receding moon that shows that the earth moon system must be very young you talked about comets that are decaying away and yet there are still comets there they decay very rapidly and so that shows that the solar system must be very young Um, what else will help non-believers see that the biblical description of a young universe, young solar system, really is true?
0: Sure. Well, we have, for example, the excess uh, internal heat of the, the giant planets, or at least three of them. Jupiter gives off more energy, more heat, than it receives from the Sun. In fact, it gives off about twice as much as it receives from the Sun, which means it's constantly losing energy. And if you run through the math, if it were really 4.5 billion years old, it should have run out of energy by now. It's kind of like when you take a potato out of the microwave, you can feel it radiating that heat to space, but it won't do that forever because it loses energy and it, and it cools off. And with a potato, it doesn't take very long. Now, Jupiter is a much bigger potato, and so it takes a lot longer. It's not a problem for thousands of years. probably wouldn't even be a problem for millions of years, but it is a problem if it's 4.5 billion years old. And it's even worse for the planet Neptune, which gives off 2.7 times As much energy as it receives from the sun, if it's billions of years old, it ought to have been an icicle by now. Why isn't it? Why is it still warm? These planets are still warm from their creation energy, and there's not really a good secular explanation for that. We could talk about the magnetic fields of the planets. For example, Earth has a magnetic field that causes your compass to point north, and that magnetic field is decaying with time. And we can measure that. And a lot of people say, no, it's oscillating. It's going back and forth and back and forth. No, no, no. It's it's actually just a simple decay, and we can measure that. We've been able to measure it for the past century and a half. And that's what we'd expect. Electrical current causes magnetic fields, and electrical current runs down just like a battery. And so the Earth's magnetic field is decaying. If you run it back a few thousand years, it's not a problem. But if you run it back millions of years, not even billions, but millions of years, the magnetic field is so strong it ripped the iron out of your blood. And that's not good. So that tells you that the Earth cannot be that old. And it's similar with many of the other planets of the solar system. Jupiter, for example, Saturn, Uranus, and Neptune all have very strong magnetic fields, much stronger than the Earth's, in fact. And if they were really uh, billions of years old, they should be, they, their magnetic field should have decayed by now. Uh, Do we know
1: whether their fields are decaying right now or not?
0: We don't with the outer planets because we've only, we only have the one measurement from the Voyager spacecraft, and they don't decay very quickly because they're bigger planets, but we do with the planet Mercury. Mercury, we have sent two spacecraft past it, one in the 1970s and then one uh, much more recently, just a few years ago. And uh, believe it or not, Mercury's magnetic field has decayed since 1970. We can actually measure that based on those two, two spacecraft. And so it, because it's a small planet, it decays kind of quickly like the Earth does. And so it can't be even millions of years old. It's, it's, it's an indication that these planets are thousands of years old. In fact, my colleague, uh, Russ Humphreys, whom you mentioned earlier, he's actually got a neat model for how God may have started the initial strength of the magnetic fields that allows him to calculate their current strength based on a decay of 6,000 years. And he successfully predicted the magnetic field strength of the planets Uranus and Neptune before they were measured by the Voyager spacecraft. And he was right on, and the secularists were way off because they were yeah. assuming the planets are billions of years old, and so they got the wrong numbers. But Dr. Humphreys was right on, and he's right about Mercury, too. He predicted that Mercury's magnetic field should de- should decay appreciably between 1970 and when uh, the Messenger spacecraft measured it, and he predicted that, and he was right on. So this is just an indication. I uh, mean, There's lots more like that, but those are just a few indications that the solar system really is thousands of years old, and my secular colleagues have to come up with uh, rescuing devices, ways to explain away right. these evidences. But if, you, if you're a biblical creationist, it just fits very naturally, I would say. It really makes a lot of sense.
1: Now, the non-Christian then is immediately thinking, well, gee, you know, what about all of these radioactive dating methods that the scientists tell us about, and they claim that they measure rocks on the earth and they're millions and billions of years old? Um, now, I, again, I might be unfair because this isn't an astronomy question, but I know that ICR did a lot of work with the RATE project, and I That's right. went to one of the conferences that was uh, here locally years ago and got to speak to some of the scientists uh, that had worked on this. Any news about that? Is there more evidence that this radiometric dating is off
0: Oh, yeah. There's, uh, that's something that, as you said, that uh, we here at ICR, we've studied very, very extensively. And uh, let me give you the short answer, and then we can expand on it. The short answer is we know that radiometric dating does not give accurate ages, and we know that because we've tested it on rocks whose age we know. We've taken rocks from recent volcanoes like Mount St. Helens, which is a volcanic eruption that happened back in, the 19, back in 1980, and then there have been some subsequent eruptions. And radiometric dating is supposed to tell you when the rock hardened from the magma, that's that sets the age at zero, and so we took some of these rocks and sent them into secular um, labs, laboratories to have them dated, and they came back with ages of hundreds of thousands to millions of years on rocks that we know are brand new. They're less than you know, they're less than thirty years old, and so they, you know, they just they're just not that old. We know the method doesn't work, and you say, well, that's the exception, and well, no, it isn't. In fact, we've done this with rocks from uh, Hawaii, we've done it with rocks from other volcanoes, and we find that. Pretty consistently, radiometric dating gives wrong ages when we know what the true age is. And so then my secular colleagues say, well, yeah, but we, <laughs> we know it works on old rocks. And I'm thinking, well, wait a minute. If we know it doesn't work on recent rocks, why would you have any confidence in the method on supposedly older rocks? It's telling us all rocks are old, even ones we know that are brand new. And so that's an indication that the method is very deeply flawed. Uh, now, occasionally it'll give the right answer. Occasionally you'll send in a rock that's brand new, and it'll give zero. Uh, sometimes it even gives a negative answer. Did you know that? You can actually have rocks yeah. that hold, yeah, you can hold in your hand that, according to radiometric dating, have not formed yet. They won't form for another <laughs> million years or so, which I think is very interesting. Some of the methods they use allow for negative answers. But uh, in any case, we know the method doesn't work because we've tested it on rocks of known age. And if you want to know the details of, of why it doesn't work, well, that's what the RATE project was all about. So you can, I, just, I just encourage your listeners, rather than get into a whole lot of details, to check, check into our website at icr.org and do some some research on the rate project rate it's called rate stands for radioisotopes and the age of the earth so i think they they might have massaged the letters there just a little bit to get rate right out of that but in any case that that was a detailed research project and we we, we now actually think we know the reasons why radiometric dating gives uh, wrong answers and it turns out there's more than one reason why it, just a very short summary one of them is that um, uh, some some of what was thought to be parent or a daughter product is not, in fact, daughter product. So there's basically contamination in the rocks. And then secondly, we believe there's very compelling evidence that decay rates have been accelerated in the past. Uh, So we're we're told that the rate at which radioactive decay happens is a constant, but we now know that that's false because we've been able to speed it up by factors of uh, billions in laboratories, so we know it's at least possible. And there's good evidence that that, in fact, has happened in nature, perhaps during the creation week and or the flood year. So that might have even been the mechanism that God used to trigger the flood, because radioactivity produces heat, and you need a heat source to start the flood. That might have been a great way to do it. In any case, we know that it doesn't work because it's been tested on rocks of known age. That's the bottom line.
1: All right. Well, uh, recently, I don't know if you saw the article, um, there was the Christian Research Journal... Uh, had an article about young Earth versus old Earth, and it, it was written from an old Earth perspective. And they kind of laid down the gauntlet uh, to the young Earthers, and they said, you know, look, we—they basically said, look, we'd love to join you, we'd love to um, believe that the Earth is young, but we simply can't because of the dating methods that show the Earth is old. And I think what they did is they looked at some. Uh, sedimentary varves, some layers um, that had been dated from the bottom of a lake. And then they looked at, I believe, uh, tree rings and the dating from tree rings. And then they showed this graph where um, those um, varves from the sediment and the tree ring um, corresponded and yet gave ages of uh, tens of thousands of years Uh, In the past, is that familiar to you? This was just recently published.
0: I haven't seen that specific article, but I'm I'm very familiar with the topic. I'm familiar with the varves and uh, certainly with tree rings. Um, And the tree rings never give.
1: Yeah, they were saying that um, you might be able to to knock down each individually, but it was the fact that they corresponded together that they're totally different. um, You know samples, one's tree rings and one's uh, sediment, and yet they correspond, and they both seem to give the same story. Um, Yeah. So I thought that was a tough one. Again, I know this is uh, not an astrophysics question, but... Sure, yeah.
0: It turns out a lot of those things are not as independent as uh, people think. In fact, uh, Dr. Hebert is working on an article right now that's looking at uh, ice cores and sedimentation on the ocean floor, and they also try to correlate those, but they try to use them as if, well, look, these agree, but in fact, one has been used to calibrate the other. And so a lot yes. of times yes. they're not as there independent you go. as people think uh... so that's something to keep in mind uh... with tree rings, tree rings never give more than the biblical age anyway and especially when you consider that tree rings, you can have more than one ring form per year, that's something that maybe people don't realize, but you can get multiple rings in a year and you you certainly don't get millions of years in tree rings, you don't get that you get ages that are consistent with 6,000 years, they might be a little more than than what we'd expect because you can get more than one ring per year so again, there are always assumptions that go into those things, there are always assumptions of of rates and uh, initial conditions and so on. And the interesting thing is there have been a lot of things like that that were used in the past that are not used anymore, uh, including a um, a, well Well, I was thinking of this um, specimen ridge at Yellowstone where they have all these different alleged forests that one supposedly that formed on top of another and so on, and you add them up and you get more than 6,000 years. There you go. The Bible can't be right. But we now know that all those trees were deposited at the same time because their tree rings match. And so that that was that was all deposited in one catastrophe. It's not used anymore for millions of years because we now know it's consistent with the worldwide flood and I would yeah, just l- suggest.
1: Go ahead. Uh, Well, I was just going to like you to expound on that, that we don't breeze through that too quickly, because that's an incredibly strong argument. What you're saying is that at Specimen Ridge, where there are very different layers, uh, um, and they have tree trunks there and tree stumps, basically, that show what look like uh, trees growing different forests, growing at different times, and so... Evolutionists say, well, this is a long ages. You can see that here are all these different forests growing one on top of another. But in reality, it turns out that the trees have the same pattern of rings that would right. not have happened. So, thick rings, uh, thick and thin, thick and thin. If you look at the pattern, you see that all of those trees actually grew at the same time.
0: That's right, and so it's an evidence, really, of catastrophe. And we now know how that happens, by the way, because when Mount St. Helens erupted, it produced that those same kind of conditions. It uprooted a bunch of trees that were all living at the same time, obviously, and uh, deposited them in Spirit Lake. And as they became waterlogged, uh, which would they would do it at different rates, some would waterlog quicker than others, they would they would fall to the bottom of that lake and be covered with sediment at different rates. And so you'd end up with different layers of trees at different levels, which um, in the past would have been interpreted as taking, you know, thousands and thousands of years. But we now know it can happen in, in a single catastrophe. And my point in, in saying all that is that if you don't, trust in God's Word, ultimately you're going to have egg on your face. It's just a question of when. And so that's one of the reasons why I continue to have confidence in God's Word. There have been a lot of things in the past that people argued, well, this, this you know, refutes biblical creation, or at least the time scale of thousands of years. And now we know it's the opposite. And so I would encourage uh, maybe Christians out there who are struggling with the issue of age, you can have confidence in the Word of God. And uh, in my opinion, there are no good arguments for billions of years. And something else I'd like to point out, too, have you noticed that, that people who say, well, you know, I'm an old earth creationist, it's never because of what the Bible says. It's always because of man's interpretation, man's fallen mind, interpretation of a cursed nature, uh, and which we never understand perfectly anyway, right. whereas a lot of times when, you, when you'll when talk with a biblical creationist, somebody who holds to a young earth, they'll say, well, the reason ultimately is because it's what God's Word teaches. And so it, it's it's a way of kind of revealing to ourselves, what you know, what is my faith really in? Is my faith really in the opinions of men, or is it really in the Word of God? And I would challenge us all, myself included, to come up higher and to have more faith in what God has said in His Word, and ultimately we will be vindicated if we take God at His Word and let God be God. Wonderful. Well,
1: we've been talking with Dr. Jason Lyle. Dr. Lyle, thank you so much for being a guest on Evidence
0: for Faith. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you very much for having me on.
1: You've been listening to Evidence for Faith, the ministry of Rashio Christi. Send your comments or questions to email at evidenceforfaith.com. And please join us again next week for more reasons to believe. And always remember that the best reason for being a Christian is because it's true. That was the-